The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Sermon on the Mount, we went over the Beatitudes and, you know, you're the salt and the light. And now I want to kind of pause in this section, verses 17 through 20, because I would really, really want us to understand the importance of what Jesus is referring to. And really, it's the Old Testament. This is Jesus' view on Scripture, his view on the Word of God, the Bible. And the reason I want to pause there, because I want us to understand, again, the importance of the Old Testament, because the Bible is under attack. You don't have to be very alert to know that, but it's become the battleground, and it always has. You know, liberal theology always argued the Bible is not inspired by God, but it's by man, just commenting, saying these religious things. So we can't really trust the Bible as the true word of God. But as we heard last Sunday, it is authored by God. Then, you know, that's the head-on attack on the Bible, and they say, People like Matthew, Paul wrote the Bible and so forth. It's not God's word. It's just their word and so forth. There's also a rear attack on the Bible where, you know, that defines what truth really is. You know, your truth is not the same as my truth and so forth. Um, They interpret truth by experience. Some people just interpret the Bible by their experiences There's another attack. We're saying, hey, the Bible is not enough. We need to add some things to it, maybe philosophy, human wisdom, and so forth. So this constant shot, if you would, at Scripture has silenced the real truth of Scripture in many years and years of people, and some people that really should know better. But it has silenced the real truth, and it's amazing that, you know, and I talk about in some circles that this is book is inerrant. There's no mistakes, no errors, Old Testament, New Testament, all of it is the Word of God. I get kind of little chuckles. You can't really believe that, do you? The Old Testament is full of some myths, made-up stories. You know, they didn't really happen. They're just examples. Really, it's also old-fashioned, out-of-date but there's one reason why I believe all 66 books are the Word of God. There's one reason. And really, the reason is because Jesus said so. It's the absolute truth. And I don't know any higher authority than that. Here we see in Jesus' ministry, he gives the Beatitudes something very different than never heard of it before, presented in that kind of way, salt and light and so forth. And then he's looking around at him and begins in verse 17. Let's read 17 through 20. He says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. Verse 18, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till it is fulfilled. 
Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, the honest Jews of that day, they knew they couldn't fulfill the requirements of the Mosaic law. They couldn't even keep their own traditions that they themselves made up, developed over the years by rabbis and the scribes. So they were looking for more of a lax system. And seeing Jesus contradicting the Pharisees and the scribes and Sadducees and all those other sects, they're thinking, hey, Jesus got something new for us. Maybe he's going to get away with all these rules, regulations, all this Old Testament stuff, what we call the Old Testament. Maybe he'll bring God's standards down to a level they could manage. But Jesus made it clear in this passage here that God's true standard was even higher than their traditions, and he in no way could diminish the law, not a bit. But he is coming to uphold it and to fulfill every detail. He had a greater commitment than any of the scribes or the Pharisees to the Scriptures. He held it higher than they did. And he wants them to know that there is no big change which will eliminate God's laws. He says if you're a true kingdom son or daughter... You're going to obey God's laws. And we see this, in, for example, in John 14, verse 15 says, If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Well, what commandments is he talking about? There's no New Testament yet. In John 14, 21, it echoes the same thing. He who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. What commandments? And Paul, struggling with his old habits in his life, says that in Romans 7.22, says, For I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. The law of God? Isn't that the Old Testament? You see, anyone that's in the kingdom, and really who has the kingdom character, he wants to manifest this kingdom testimony. He will have a commitment to the absolute authority of, of the Word of God. And folks, you know, we throw that word around quite a bit. You know, Bibles, complete authority, and so forth, but we don't know any of it. The New Testament, why do we have the Old, New Testament, really? Because the Old Testament is the foundation of the New Testament. There's nothing new, really. There's some things that were fulfilled, as we talked about last Sunday, but all New Testament does is repeats what's in the Old Testament. And they were thinking the standards will be changed, but in verse 17 he says, do not think. He saw what was on their hearts and minds as he's preaching this sermon. He says, do not think. So last time we looked at the preeminence or the superiority of God's law. It's held up high, higher than anything. It's the complete authority. Why? Well, we talked about it, number one, because it's authored by God. 
Do not think I came to destroy the law. And the law he was referring to is not all those traditions that they made up. The law he was referring to is God's law. Secondly, it was affirmed by the prophets. We looked at that when the prophets took the original law of God and what did they do? They just repeated it. They were just the mouthpiece of God. So it's superior to anything else because it was authored by God. It was confirmed by the prophets. And the third thing, because everything is fulfilled by Jesus. That's the most marvelous of it all. The law of God is fulfilled and accomplished in Jesus Christ. We looked at John 5.39 where it says, You search the scriptures. What scriptures are they searching at that time? You search them. For in them you think you have eternal life. You have this eternal life in those scriptures, but really, these are they which testify of me. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of the whole entire Old Testament. He fulfilled it in one way or in another. In Hebrews 10, 7, it says, Then I said, Behold, I come. The volume of the book, it is written of me, to do your will, O God. The volume of the book is written of me. He'll fulfill the law morally, ceremonially. We talked about that. There's the judicial law. You see, all these prophecies that were in the Old Testament, somebody has to fulfill them, right? There has to be a Messiah to fulfill them. All these pictures that were in the Old Testament had to have a reality. Someone had to be the perfect person to fulfill all these things and fulfill God's moral law. And again, in verse 17, it says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to do that. It says, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So in verse 17, we see this superiority of it. Nothing is going to be anything more authoritative than the Scriptures. And then in verse 18, which we'll study for today, he says, For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. So we see he's not destroying it. He's going to fulfill it. It's complete authority, preeminence. In verse 18, it talks about the permanence of the law, the permanence or the perseverance of Scripture. He says, for assuredly I say to you, Jesus confirmed this special importance. He's about to say something is absolutely without qualification, fullest authority. He says, until heaven and earth pass, that's another absolute. Till heaven and earth pass. It's like saying in our day, right? I cross my heart and I hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye when we're trying to confirm something, right? That is true. Whatever we say. He's saying the word of God will be here until the universe passes out out of its present existence. That this scripture is permanent. And someday it will, this universe will cease to exist. We know that, right? And he says, until heaven and earth pass away, the word of God would outlast all of that. 
We read in 2 Peter 3, 7, it says, But the heavens and earth which now are preserved for the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment, perdition of ungodly men. And then verse 10, it says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which heavens will pass away with great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. That's the New Testament, right? So it's telling us this world will end. It'll burn up. Well, let's look at the Old Testament. Psalm 102, 25, 27 says, If you of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. So God, this whole earth, heavens, universe, you made it. Work of your hands. And then in verse 26 it says, They will perish. What they what is he referring to? The earth, the work of your hands. But you will endure. Yes, they will grow like a old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Do you see that? He's comparing the eternal God with the passing of the universe. Isaiah also spoke about this in 51.6. He says, If lift up your eyes to the heavens and look on the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish away like smoke, and the earth will grow, like, like, grow old like a garment. Isn't that what the, we just read in the psalm? And those who dwell in it will die in like manner. And then he says, But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be abolished. God and his word are one. In Isaiah 34, 4, it says, And all the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as a leaf falls from the vine, and as fruit falling from a fig tree. Why am I reading all these scriptures to you? Because I want you to see the importance of it, because all it is is just repeated in the New Testament. You see this? He says, heavens rolled up like a scroll. Fruit fallen from a fig tree. Well, this is the same imagery John saw in Revelation. Look at Revelation 6, verses 13 and 14. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as the fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by the mighty wind. Then the sky proceeded as a scroll and it was rolled up. And every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Fig tree. Falling fruit, sky rolled up like a scroll. It's the same imagery. Old Testament, New Testament. And again in Matthew 24, 35, Jesus confers, says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. What was true of the law in its full meaning as the Old Testament, we need to understand, was also was also true of Jesus' teaching. So this book, regardless of Old Testament, New Testament, it's a timeless book. People say, well, you know, we're New Testament Christians, you know, and that's old, but the Old Testament is even older. How, how does this apply to us? What has got to do with anything, everything? It has to do with everything. You can't understand the New Testament if you don't know the Old Testament. It's authored by eternal living God. Bible is the eternal word of God. And his word, his word, not my words, not your words, not our opinions, not our, you know, thoughts and so forth. 
Look at his powerful word. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even the divisions of the soul and spirit and joints and marrow and the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Let me say this. This book, as I mentioned, it's under attack. It will outlast every single one of us. Everyone that's attacking it or has been attacking it, you know, I'm from a communist country. Where's communism? Where's communist Russia? They're attacking the word. Word of God's still there. They're no longer in existence. And Jesus can't get more specific as he does in statement 18 and says, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. You know, we have a saying, you know, we say cross your T's and dot your I's, right? Those little little things and I's. So I was looking at this verse, and the best illustration I can give you is the difference between a letter E and an F, right? F has two lines running across perpendicular. E has three. That little last line there at the bottom makes all the difference, right? And he's saying that one tittle, one iota of this law, the smallest letter will not be erased. Not even the tiniest, maybe to us or to them, seems something as insignificant Jesus says none of it will be removed or modified until all is what? Accomplished. And we discussed last Sunday a brief with God how Jesus completed or fulfilled some of these things in the ceremonial laws and so forth and in the moral law. And we talk about moral law, you know, we talk about the Ten Commandments. Are they not valid today, the Ten Commandments? No, they are. They're just as valid as the day they were valid on Mount Sinai. And during his ministry, Jesus fulfilled many of the prophecies of the Old Testament. Other, other prophecies, for example, coming in the Holy Spirit would come later as it did. We know that. And some prophecies are yet to be fulfilled. But without the smallest exception, every commandment, every prophecy, every little period comma in the Word of God it's going to be accomplished. Have you thought about that? That's just mind-boggling. Every single word. And Jesus referred to the Old Testament, from what I could tell or I've studied, at least 64 times. And when he did it, he always used it as the authority in talking to the people. You know, there was an example um, when he was defending his divinity, if you would, that he's the Messiah, where in John 10, 30, he said, I and my Father are one. Well, he's comparing himself to God. So what happened? Look in verses 31, 32. Then the Jews took up the stones again to stone him. And Jesus said, many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these works are you going to go stone me? He said, I and my Father are one. They got mad. Why you get mad? 
Well, in verses 33, 34, it says this is the reason they got mad. For the good work we do not stone you, but for your blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. And look at Jesus' answer in verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are God's. Why are you mad? I'm just quoting the scripture. Right? It's the Old Testament. Is it not written in your law? And then he says in John 10, 35, If he called them God's to whom the word of God came, and look at that last phrase, and the scripture cannot be broken. So we're talking about the permanence, permanence of the Old Testament of the Scripture. It says it can't be broken. There's lots of examples in the Bible. Another one, when Sadducees came and they tried to trip them up about the resurrection, right? They didn't believe that there was a resurrection. Well, is resurrection in the Old Testament? Well, let's take a look. In Matthew 22, 23, it says, The same day the Sadducees came to him and who say there is no resurrection, came and asked him, in verse 24, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, that no longer applies, but this is what Moses instructed them. In other words, if you make a commitment to a woman and when you die, there's no children who will take care of that woman, the brother will move in. Interesting concept. And then in verse 25 says, Now there were with us seven brothers. So there's seven of them. The first died after he had married and having no offspring. So the first husband died, no children, and left his wife to his brother. And then in verse 26 says, They said, Likewise, the second also and the third, and even to the seventh. So there were no son to take care of her, no family. So the brother took care of her. The second brother married her. He didn't have any children. He died. So he moves on to the next brother. And this happens seven times, and they all die. And I was reading this scripture. You know, if I was the fifth brother or something, I'd be like, hey, what's going on here? They all dying. What's this woman up to? Let me out of this deal, right? But anyway, it says seven. And then he says the woman died, which probably gave peace for everyone, I suppose. There's no eighth brother. In verse 27 it says, last of all, the woman died also. And the question was this. Therefore, in this resurrection, whose wife of the seven shall she be, for they all had her. And it's interesting how Jesus answers this question, at least for me, because, again, I feel that the Old Testament is very important for us to understand. He says in verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not knowing the Scriptures. What Scriptures? The Old Testament nor the power of God. See, the question itself is a foolish question because the very premise of it was wrong, but he answers it anyway. In verse 30 says, For in the resurrection there neither marry nor are given in marriage, 
but are like angels of God in heaven. He says, don't worry about it. In heaven, there's no marriage. They're all like gods, like angels of gods. And not only that, but then he says, hey, by the way, since you studied the Old Testament, you know, let me give you a correction here. Let me give you a lesson. Because your view of the resurrection, which you do not believe, and you're asking a question about it, you don't believe in the first place, but you're asking a question about it. Let me, let me correct you. And he says this in verses 31, 32. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, so he answers this question, but then he says, but concerning, let me give you a lesson here. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, have you not read? What are they supposed to read? Seems like they're getting rough on their reading assignments. And verse 32 says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You see, he's just using this one tiny verb, one tense, to show you that they're still alive. What he's quoting here is really the Old Testament in Exodus. If you read Exodus 3.6, it says, Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. You see, the key thing here about the resurrection, he doesn't say, I was the God of your father who passed away. I was their God. He's saying, I am their God. He is, not he was. All these patriarchs, or Moses and Jacob and so forth, all they died, but obviously, they're still alive. Have you not read? Did you not read this piece of Scripture which says, I am the God of Abraham? I am the God of Abraham means he's still alive. So therefore, not only it's authoritative, not only in the smallest part of every letter, but also, we've got to pay attention to these grammatical forms, right? Because Scripture, folks, and if we pay attention to that, does not contradict itself. We just don't understand it. We don't study it, and we say, well, this don't make sense. He said this here, but this here. Well, did you study it? Over and over, Jesus confirmed the accuracy and the authenticity of the Old Testament. You know, I want to give you some scriptures. I'm going to give, kind of go fast. But God gave an order, right? For example, for marriage between man and woman. That's how God designed it. That's in the Old Testament. Well, that's Old Testament, doesn't apply. Well, Jesus restates it in the New Testament. In Matthew 19:4, he answered and said to them, Have you not read? that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Saying, are you, are you referring to the Old Testament? You know, we quote this, but really Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. We quote Matthew, but Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. And people say that Old Testament is full of myths and stories. For example, the famous one, probably Noah's flood and Jonah, right? How can... Jonah be swallowed by the whale. You know, and they go on these, I've watched some documentaries, they try to 
prove how that's impossible even for the orcas to swallow them and the throat doesn't fit in there and so forth. They go all these studies. And folks, I'm not being meaning or trying to make fun. But you know what? God said so. That's, that's, how, that's why I believe it. To me, it's not just a story. It actually happened. You know, another, and this is, <laughs> you know, to, to go in a compromise or to make, make it more kind of appealable to people. Some pastors, for example, have heard this. He said, well, it wasn't really a whale. There was a boat tied to the boat, and they threw him in there. And so that's, that's the saving whale. It was really a boat. So, you know, trying to make the story more believable to people in their mind. And I'm just sitting there. Well, how do you explain where it says the whale vomited Noah? Did your boat vomit Noah to shore? And I'm not making fun again, but it's just common sense. Some things in our head don't make sense, and they won't until we see God face to face. And that's okay. Noah's flood, right? Murder of Abel. That's confirmed in the New Testament. He's always referring to the Old Testament. In Luke eleven fifty one 51 says, From the blood of Abel and the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. So he's confirming the death of Abel. Noah's flood. Look at Matthew 24, verses 38, 39. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving marriage until the day of Noah entered the ark, and they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. You will find more documentaries today and more TV shows and more 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 material trying to disprove that Noah's flood ever happened. It's impossible. But Jesus confirmed the Old Testament in the New Testament. He confirmed about Abraham and his faith. In John eight fifty six, and the father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and Lot's wife and all those things that happened there in Luke 17, 29. But on that day, the Lot went out from Sodom and rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. How can fire? That's a made-up story. Well, is Jesus making it all up too? The call of Moses in Mark 12, 26 says, But concerning the dead, they were, again, we read this verse, that they rise. Have you not read in the book of Moses? In the burning bush passage, God spoke to him saying, I am your God, when, when he called Moses to go to Egypt. And they were leaving Egypt. God gave him this bread called manna from heaven, right? Is that a made-up story? Well, Jesus confirmed it in John 6, 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And same thing, he repeats it in verse 58. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna, but are the dead who eats this bread will live forever. So he's confirming. Remember the bronze serpent? Well, he confirmed that too in John 3, 14. says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so he's confirming the Old Testament, but it's a picture of what? 
was going to happen in the New Testament. So must the Son of Man be lifted? You see how it just repeats itself over and over? And you know, if you just had the Old Testament, you were stuck in an island, it's enough for you to get to heaven. Do you know that? Jesus also made it clear that the Scripture, that is the Old Testament, was given to lead men to salvation. Look at this parable of a rich man and Lazarus. Abraham told the rich man that if his brothers, you know, he said, hey, I have brothers over there. Can you go and save them? Look at the Luke 16, verses 27, 31. Then he said, this is Lazarus, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. Send Abraham over there. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. He's in hell, torment. He wants some water. He's still feeling that thirst today, all these years later. But Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Moses and the prophets. You want to get to heaven? <laughs> you don't want to be in the place of torments? Let them hear Moses and the prophets. Well, what's the Moses and the prophets? That's the Old Testament. In verse 30, he says, no, he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he says to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded through one rise from the dead. In other words, they had God's word, which was sufficient to bring them to God and to salvation if they would believe it. Jesus also used the Old Testament folks in his defense. Do you remember when he was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness? Well, let's look at a couple of verses here. In Matthew 4, 4, Jesus said, but he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we quote this, the New Testament. What was Jesus doing? He was relying on the Word of God, Old Testament, Deuteronomy 8.3. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed your mana, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he, make, that he might make you know that the man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Exact same thing. In 4.7, Jesus again answers Satan and says, It is written, you shall not tempt your Lord your God. In Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him, Messiah. You should not tempt him. Matthew 4.10, Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Deuteronomy 6.13, You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him, and shall take oaths in his name. Now understand what's happening here, and this is the importance of it. You see, Jesus is God in human flesh, right? Right? He's God in human flesh. When he was being tempted by the devil, and this is, again, interesting to me, but maybe not to you, but you have no choice but to listen. He could have challenged his authority, right? Jesus could have just made up some new verses, couldn't he? Right? 
But if he did, what would that do to the Old Testament? It's no longer preeminent. It's no longer authoritative. He could have just done that. But he is showing us a pattern here for us how to deal with temptation. How do we deal it? With Scripture. When Satan comes knocking on your door, how do you get rid of him? Say, you blow on him or something? No. Scripture. He's quoting scriptures. He testified their divine origin and their authority. Jesus, being God, still depended on the scriptures because they have the authority. You know, sometimes you hear pastors preach, and again, not making fun or whatever, but you turn on TV, you go on the internet, and you see it. Not one ounce of scripture in their sermon. Really, they just refer to Scripture kind of like I did, said, hey, do you guys remember the story of Jonah? And then they just give their own opinion, you know, like it's a boat or whatever. And why do people do that? Because, as one pastor said, sometimes when I use the Scripture, went verse by verse, people tend to get bored. They do. If you get bored, wake up, get some coffee. But he realized that just sharing stories was more interesting for the people. It created the different kind of experience. There's this, you know, some kind of phenomena. But this is nothing new. Devil always tries to silence the scriptures. Because you see, the scriptures, the authority, have power. When I'm just sharing a story, make you feel good, right? That's called cotton candy preaching. You know, taste is good, but never fills you up. You leave, you leave, but there's nothing to ponder about. There's no power in my words. The power comes from the Word of God. That's it. It's simple as that. And people today are turned off by the Word of God. Just like as they were in that day. But our opinions, those kind of stories, cannot lead you to salvation. The Word of God leads you to salvation. And it's interesting, again, Jesus dealt with Satan. He didn't go into his own words and his opinions. He went to the Scriptures. Isn't that interesting? Let me show you the power of God as an example. You know, this is not the very first sermon that Jesus ever gave this. Maybe the longest, but not the first. Do you know what Jesus did in one of his first sermons? Absolutely nothing. He just read the Word of God. Because the Word of God is powerful. Shortly after this temptation in the desert, he went to his synagogue because it was Sabbath. Look at with me in Luke 16 and following And it says, so he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on Sabbath day and stood up to read. He was handed a book of prophet of Isaiah. And when he had opened it, he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recover the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's his first sermon. And then it says, then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him, and look at that, it said, marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, isn't this not Joseph's son? What did Jesus do? There's power in his words. What do you do? All he did was read Isaiah 61.1. Look at it. The Spirit of the Lord, God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the person, those who are bound. You see, Jesus did not change the Old Testament. He fulfilled it. He restated it as authority over and over and then the permanence, the permanence of all of this. And remember when John the Baptist sent a couple of disciples to ask Jesus, are you the chosen one, or should we look for another? Right? Remember that? Look at Matthew 11, 3 and 5, and said to him, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. And which are the things you see and hear? The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Didn't we just read in Isaiah 6-1 that he's preaching the gospel to the poor? And all he did was also reinstate Isaiah 35-5. Look at, the, look at what it says there in verses 5 through 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the blind see. The ears of death shall be unstopped, they hear. Then the lame shall leap like a deer. The tongue of the dumb will sing. The water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isn't that incredible? Because sometimes people say, well, he was doing all these miracles and so forth. Well, the reason he was doing them is because there was a prophecy of them in the Old Testament. And what he's doing is fulfilling them. There's the authority of scriptures. And folks, remember when he, Jesus also cleansed the temple? Remember that? You get calm and some people say Jesus got angry so he sinned and so forth. But was that another prophecy? Why was Jesus cleaning the temple? Well, in Mark 11, 17, he says this, Then he taught them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves? This is the house of prayer. They made it in den of thieves. And then it says, you know, what's interesting here, it says prayer for all nations, not just Israel. 
So that's Mark eleven seventeen for us. But look at Isaiah 56, 7. It says, Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. For all nations. Any Pharisee or scribe should have paid attention to that. doesn't say just Israel. So what's going to happen later? And really, it was also predicted, this whole den of thieves thing that's happening in the temple. It's nothing new. It's still happening today. But if you look at Jeremiah 7, 11, it says, Has this house, which called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? And then the answer says, Behold, I even I, I have seen it, says the Lord. You've seen it. Folks, it's ex- impossible for us to accept Christ's authority without accepting the authority of the Old and the New Testaments, or vice versa. They stand together. They're permanent. And if we're going to accept Jesus Christ and believe that he's God, we need to pay attention and believe what Jesus says about God's Word. Again, I'm taking a pause here, so pardon me, because I want us, Grace Fellowship Church, to understand the importance of the Old Testament as well. Now, it's not a priority of the New Testament. They're all equal. But it just seems like lots of churches and lots of Christians these days, all they read is the New Testament. And the reason they come up with their own opinions and what it means to me (laughs) versus what it actually means, because they don't study the Old Testament. Because if they studied the Old Testament, they would see what it actually means. Not to us, but what Jesus actually meant. And what he's teaching here, Scripture is binding. And to be the kingdom citizen, we have to accept what the king says about God's word. Scripture's authority is Christ's authority. And to obey the Lord is to obey his word, folks. And John 8, 47 says, He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear Why do people do not hear? Because they're not of God. And people get mad at me when I tell them that. Trust in Christ. Peter said in John 6, 68, Peter answered to him, said, Lord, whom shall we go? You have the words of the eternal life. There's words of eternal life. But people are so smart these days, they say there's errors in the Bible. Old Testament contains many errors. Well, let's just assume, set the New Testament aside. If the Old Testament contains errors, and here's Jesus holding it up as the supreme authority and saying it's binding, it's permanent, we must conclude a couple of things about Jesus then if there's errors in the Old Testament. One possibility is ignorant of those errors. Well, that would tell us he's not all-knowing, is he? Therefore, he is not God. Or maybe he knew there were errors, but he denied them, which will make him a hypocrite, just like the Pharisees. 
if he didn't know. He's not God. But there's uh, another possibility, and the one I stick with, there are no errors. And sometimes when people say, do you believe the Bible is literally true? And that's the reason I find these verses so important in Matthew 17 through 20, because Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, believed it to be literally true. And again, folks, that's good enough for me. Maybe things I don't understand. And you know, it's interesting. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 20, it says this, For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Any of you seen the TV series Mandalorian? No? I have spoken. That's it. God has spoken. So if God has spoken and all these things are true, there's no errors, what is it that we must do? If he said not a single letter or stroke or a comma or a period or a little dot won't pass away till, you know, earth will, in universe, will cease to exist, what should we do? Well, first, you should receive it. Receive the word, the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. You've got to receive this word. And James 1.21 says, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. Folks, it doesn't matter if you agree with it or things you don't understand. You welcome it. You welcome it. That's what it means here to receive. Because the author is God himself. And Jesus uses it as the authority. It makes authoritative statements about it. And we should always receive it because the price God had to pay for it, for this word. And if we don't receive it, it will bring judgment. Second, we call to honor God's word. You know, in Psalm 138, verse 2 says, I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your love and kindness and your truth. Truth is God's word. And then he says, for you have magnified your word above your name. What word is he talking about down in Psalms? In Psalm 119, 103, it says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Or do we have an attitude Either we love and honor this book or sometimes we just get defensive about it. You know, sometimes when it, you know, lays a guilt trip on us or tells us something in our lives that's wrong, we try to make up excuses, don't we? Well, that's the Old Testament. Well, that's, that's a cultural difference. It's different these days. The third thing, you accept it, you honor it, you obey and study it. You obey and study it. In 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourselves approved of God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And the reason we have so much confusion is because people can't rightly divide the word of truth. You know, I remember reading about Charles Spurgeon, one of the quotes he said, that, that back, even back then he said one of the challenges is not to 
discern between right and wrong, but between right and almost right. And that's what's happening in the world today. It sounds good, right? Even when Satan tempted Jesus, he what? He quoted Scripture. It sounded good, but it wasn't the whole truth. You obey it, you study it. In Jeremiah 15, 16, we read this, your words were found and I ate them. Your word was to me joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord of hosts. So he's comparing him to little food here. Your words were found, and I ate them. And then in Colossians, Paul writes in 3.16, says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, sing the grace in your hearts to the Lord. So, when I was reading this, it was kind of, I found your words and ate them. And when I got these words, what do we got to do with them? Forget about them? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Right? It's like the vitamins for your soul. You need to get fat on eating God's word. And fourth, folks, we must we must. Defend God's word. And there's many scriptures about that. Do not be ashamed. In Jude 3, we read, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Like Jude, we should fight for integrity, purity, and the authority of scripture. So we welcome it, we honor it, we study it, and lastly, folks, you must proclaim it. Do you know that? It's not just the pastor's job. It's every single one of you. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2 says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. Preach the word. So I know our time is getting short, so I'll end here. And folks, so in verse 17, we see God's view of Scripture. Verses 17 to 20. In 17, he says, it's preeminent. It's complete authority, supreme. In verse 18, he says, it's the permanence. It's going to outlast this whole universe. All of that until everything is fulfilled. Permanence, perseverance of Scripture. And you know, if you think through history, no book has been so attacked like the Bible. Think about it. Just human history. Torah is not attacked, all those other Mormon books not attacked. But the Bible, the Word of God, has always been attacked. This is another reason I believe this is the complete authority in the Word of God. <clears throat> but here's the thing. It's always been attacked through history. But yet here's 2021. 
it's still right here. Right? It outlasted every single person that tried to shut it down. You know, there's a famous person, Voltaire, in history, and he hated Christians and so forth in his the reason I say it's interesting because he said there's 12 people that started Christianity and there's going to be one person that will put an end to it and in 100 years there'll be no Bibles. And the interesting part was he died. The Word of God is still here. And I don't know if God did this on purpose, but God got the last laugh because his house was used by the Geneva Bible Society to store Bibles. Isn't that interesting? The Word of God will endure forever. It will perform perfectly. And Jesus said, <clears throat> excuse me, not one iota. So folks, all hell can rise up against the Word, but it will still perform. And you see that verse 18 is really repeating what God said in Isaiah. This is not on the slide, but you can write it down, and I'm sure you've heard it before. Isaiah 55, 11. And we'll end with this verse. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth, God says. Right? It shall not return to me void, but it will accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I send it. Isn't that amazing? And the reason I find this so amazing is because all these books in the Old Testament were written years and years apart. And here we are in the New Testament. All of that is slowly being fulfilled and is just solidifying the authority of the entire Word of God. Let's pray. Next week we'll look at the relevance of the law in verse 19. Father,